Welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm interviewing Isaac Lindenberger. Isaac, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Isaac, let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Sure. Yeah, that, I can do that. Um, let's see. The first thing is I'm very interested in the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. So I'm wondering how they can cure addiction, depression, PTSD, things along those lines. So I find that to be really fascinating. Um, number two, I used to be an anarchist. Actually, I used to be quite the conspiracy theorist um, up until I was in my own conspiracy. And from the inside looking out, that really changed things. So. That's much different now, so that's that's pretty interesting. Um, and a third thing, um, I am in school to be a social psychologist, and I'm graduating this semester. So once I finish up with all this, all this homework and assignments, I will be in the clear for grad school, and I can't wait because undergrad can be stressful. That is really cool and really fascinating. Thanks, Isaac. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Alan Watts. He was yes. a... Yeah. Oh, great, great. Because I understand he experimented somewhat with psychedelics and, and with marijuana. And he wrote quite extensively on his experiences and his theories surrounding the influence of chemical substances. And also on psychotherapy, I believe, as, as well. Timothy Leary, I think, was another one um, who might be worth investigating if you want to learn more about that. Timothy Leary, I'm pretty sure, also yeah. uh, experimented considerably. And he was quite a um, countercultural icon as well. Um, still is, I believe. Uh, yes, he was kicked out of Harvard for his studies because they weren't very um, rigorous. He would kind of give LSD to anyone who walked in his office. And oh, wow. You can imagine how that goes at an <laughs> official institution. It doesn't last long. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, can you imagine what would happen if he tried that today? That is just insane. <laughs> the lawsuits alone would be unimaginable. And it didn't even go well for him in the 60s. So, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're doing stuff with drugs that makes people worried in the 60s, you know you've got to be doing something pretty wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it did not go over well with him. Alan Watts was way more, less edgy, less controversial. Um, and he's very inspiring. I like the way he can communicate science in a way that people find intuitive, I guess. They, yeah, he, Alan he, he Watts He communicates is, science in a way that isn't depressing. Watts is definitely the, the thinking man's psychedelic experimenter. And he has done a lot of reading on Buddhism and, and Taoism as well. And I think he's folded some of those ideas into his larger worldview. So he's quite an eclectic thinker and he was quite ahead of his time too, even, even for the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I really like the way he frames like our place in the universe. It's kind of like Max Tegmark. It's like the universe doesn't give meaning to you. 
we give meaning to the universe. And I think framing that the right way can be helpful for people. So yeah, that's cool. I like, I like those kinds of philosophers and thinkers. They don't have much to do with vaccination, but they're <laughs> awesome nonetheless. I'm sure they probably don't even have a position on that. Okay, so let's get to your story and your background. What can you tell me about the family background in which you were raised? Because I understand you were not raised in a pro-vax family. Yeah, it was more a vaccine. Like, my mom definitely wasn't pro-vax. My dad didn't really care. He was kind of uh, whatever my mom said, she she knew what she was talking about, at least it seemed to him. But other than not really getting vaccinated myself, I had a few when I was born. I was the last one. She stopped after me. Uh, I never really heard much about vaccination, although I do think that even though I didn't grow up necessarily anti-vax, I think some of the attitudes my parents had towards other domains of like religion, attitudes towards science in general, especially towards the medical community. Like my mom was never really big on going to the doctor. She was more home remedy. We're going to do stuff ourselves. And those are the attitudes that really affected our development, I think, in a more tangible way, since vaccines weren't brought up all too often, other than when Ethan got his. So I think those attitudes affected my perceptions of the world and maybe were part of the reason why I was initially an anarchist when I was younger. I was more sketched out by pretty much anything the government did because we were so self-sufficient and never really reliant on outside organizations for, you know, the stuff we did as a family. And, and I could see those conservative attitudes in my parents as well. You know, the, the government really shouldn't do anything for you. It just should do stuff for itself, I guess. I, I don't really understand the attitudes too much. But yeah, I think that's probably what affected me the most. And so when everything happened with my brother, I was really sketched out because I had been an anarchist who'd been skeptical of the government. And I see all this stuff happening with the media and the Senate with my brother. And, you know, I was more on my mom's side, I think, not because she was anti-vaccine, but because of that general skepticism that she had instilled and my family had instilled growing up. So I think that kind of explains why I was kind of on the other, other end of this uh, conversation when I was first introduced to it. I can understand the distrust of government, which is pretty much a baseline aspect of the American psyche. But the government isn't the only institution that supports vaccines what about scientists what about doctors the people who are actually qualified to deliver these vaccines the people who develop them and the people who test them um were those people ever considered trustworthy or or not and and if so what was the reason that is a great question. And I actually have a argument I make based off of this point. So like you said, it's not just the government when it comes to vaccines. And when I first came out, came out as more pro-vaccine, I have had a community of anarchists and libertarians and people who don't trust the government. In my social group, they were my friends and they were 
who I, you know, who I talk to on a regular basis. And so they, they immediately were telling me, oh, you just trust the government. You just trust the government. That's why you like vaccines now, even though I've had a pretty clear reputation of not trusting the government. And so this was actually one of my arguments that government and medicine are not one institution. Um, and one example I use is actually psychedelics. The government wants to illegalize psychedelic drugs, despite their proven efficacy at curing dangerous diseases and opening one's mind. And they have literally no toxicology profile. It's like virtually impossible to overdose on them. So unless you're like eating them like Skittles or something, but still, it's still going to be pretty hard. So science and government are separate here. Scientists say psychedelics should be legal. Government says, no, they shouldn't. And so medicine and science are sometimes at odds with the government. So they can't just be in bed with each other all the time. There are many instances where they're in opposition. And so this is one of the points I made to kind of defend myself from my friends who are still holding my previous attitudes. And I thought it was a good argument. They would just be like, oh, well, you think just because of psychedelics, vaccines are fine? Like they, they totally straw manned my argument, but that's, uh, I think you're right. I think that is a, a proper way of looking at it. Honestly, my skepticism in government in general has decreased as well. Um, so I, I even think that even if government and science were one institution, that still would be an invalid argument because it's a misrepresentation of government, I think now, um, but that's it's kind of a separate argument. So what about your parents then? What were their views on science in general and vaccine science in particular? Let, let's focus on your mother because she seems to have been the, the driving force behind this. Where did she get her information? What prompted her skepticism of vaccine? I think books. Um, my brother said Facebook at the court hearing, but I think it was, I mean, Facebook wasn't really around in, in 2000. Um, so I think it was books that she read. And oh, well, here's something interesting. I learned this recently myself. Um, my mom had this friend, her name was Colleen. And this friend had, my grandma was telling me, she was never anti-vax before meeting this friend. And she met this friend and she had all these anti-vax ideas and this personal story that was really moving, probably something to do with her own child. And so I just learned actually, it was not Facebook or maybe not even books, but it was this friend my mom met. And that does make sense when we think about the things that influence us most in life. Um, a personal connection with someone we trust who has an attitude that we don't agree with is pretty likely to influence you in some ways. And I think that's what happened with my mom. But here's an example of her thinking going well. And this is an example of what supports her worldview and why she maintains it, I think. There was um, a time when my younger brother, Noah, who's maybe eight or nine, about a decade ago, and uh, he had warts on his foot. And they were pretty bad. And the hospital said that he needed to have surgery to get them removed. And he would have been in a wheelchair for a few weeks, crutches. It would have been very painful, all this stuff. Well, I was like, no, I'm going to do my own research. She found this nutrition drink called Goyin that boosts your immune system or something and gave it to him for a few weeks and his warts went away. Now, this could have been coincidence. Uh, 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 when people try to find alternative remedies to problems, 
even if they hadn't found anything, often those problems are already on their way to healing themselves. But it could have been a direct correlation as well. But this is just an example of my mom taking things into her own hands, not trusting the scientific community. It appears to work out based on, you know, supposedly what she did, at least that's what it looks like. And so, oh, look, taking things into my own hands instead of just trusting the scientists and doctors worked well for me here. Now, I don't know how well that's going to work with cancer treatment, but if you see what I mean, but you know, that's one of the ways I think that worldview was reinforced. You mentioned your mother's views changed quite rapidly when she encountered this new friend and began to absorb her ideas and become influenced by her worldview. That's a very common story in the anti-vax community because people influence each other very easily if they have a baseline of shared interest and share the same worldview and then start to share uh, stories, personal stories, particularly emotional stories about experiences they've had with problems or, or things that seem to be related to medicine or, or science or whatever that go against the, the current trend of, of scientific consensus. And they start to think, well, maybe science is wrong. Maybe the doctors are mistaken. Maybe I can't trust them anymore. And social media, of course, has amplified this massively. But it does have a significant weakness, which is that these stories are 99% of the time purely anecdotal. And anecdotes are not data. What kind of mentality is it that leads people to conclude that an unsubstantiated anecdote is more convincing than years of scientific research, which has proven again and again, how, how does that change in thinking occur, do you think? I think it has to do with specific in-groups and the way that they communicate certain messages. So with my mom, for example, um, she, know, she literally has said, it doesn't matter what the science says. It doesn't, most people who are against vaccines won't say this. They use science to their advantage, which is normally pseudoscience, but regardless, they know science is a good thing to argumentatively have on your side, regardless, in terms of the actual way people think about this personally and not how they express their opinions online. Um, this is a good representation. She said, doesn't matter what the science says, doesn't matter what any of the data says, all of these parents know their children and they know their children best, better than anyone else does. And if it happened on the same day, there's no way it was a chance. We got to listen to these parents and listen to these mothers. So it's in-group prioritization of certain information, and it's a trusting of mothers in particular. Now, when those mothers are previously anti-vax and now pro-vax, those trusting mothers' opinions seems to go away, which is somewhat ironic. And it's also ironic for the people against vaccines that do support science, are quotation marks there, um, they say, well, we want the gold standard of, of, of research, the double-blind placebo study. We want, we want the gold standard. All this emphasis on the gold standard, then they proceed to use the weakest form of scientific evidence, which is anecdotes. So that's not gold standard at all. Uh, it's kind of a total, it, it's, it just doesn't make any sense, but pointing out that cognitive dissonance is difficult. So yeah, I think it has to do with the in-group. I think it has to do with this idea of trusting mothers. 
And I think that, well, that's one of the problems when you have physicians who don't take parents' vaccines concerns seriously and kind of brush them aside, like, oh, just get vaccinated, whatever, it's good for you. Don't really listen. Those people are going to be more prone to influence by the Wakefield types who say, you know your child best, and they have that empathetic approach. They're going to reach out to them there. So that's why physicians and doctors need to be as empathetic as possible when it comes to addressing these views. That way they don't run to the other camp who, who knows what to say and appeal to that mindset. You've raised a number of excellent points there. The, the issue of doctors appearing not to give parents enough credibility or, or enough time to express their concerns and then once they've expressed them not actually seeming to care about their concerns or, or have the time or the inclination to listen to them that is definitely a problem that is definitely an, an issue parents want to be listened to they want to they want to feel that they've been heard and understood and they want a response to what they've said that goes beyond don't worry about it it's it's all taken care of this is not an issue. They want reasons. They want answers. That's perfectly reasonable. So there's definitely an issue there where sometimes doctors are their own worst enemy. They are too dismissive because they, they think I'm just being confident and trying to be reassuring here. But in fact, they, they are unconsciously talking over the parent and dismissing concerns rather than addressing them directly and explaining why those concerns are unfounded. But there's also the problem that the anti-vax community rests largely on its treasure trove of anecdotes, of testimonials, of, of stories. And this is all highly emotional. This is a, an, an appeal to emotion. And it's intended to be that way, of course, because that will galvanize response in, in other parents, particularly mothers, as, as you've said. And they use this double standard where they want everyone to believe the stories of the anti-vax mothers, but not the pro-vax mothers, which is a classic example of anti-vax hypocrisy. But what would you say then to a mother who said to you, how can all of these parents be wrong? Do you think they are lying? Are you accusing all these mothers of lying about their children? What would you say to them? That is a great question because it gets brought up often. And my response is normally, no, I don't think any of them are lying. I think all of them, I mean, you know, maybe a few, but most of them, the majority are probably very honest with the way that they view how these things happen. The question is whether or not they are accurately assessing the situation. And so, yes, intention matters. Yes, these mothers probably all believe this, but how do you know that they're actually right? And that's where research comes into play. And that's where science shines. That's where we need data to be able to establish correlations and not just ca causal correlations and not just something that could be the cause of chance or coincidence. And I try to emphasize, so sometimes I'll make the point that think about how many vaccines are administered daily and yearly basis. You know, you've got millions of vaccines administered a year and those are all administered at a similar time. So mathematically speaking, some of those administrations have to coincide with adverse events that aren't related to the vaccine. Some of them have to. And then I'll go further 
And I'll admit, and some of them could be caused by the vaccine. There are adverse reactions. They are just very rare. And I think when you have a language of vaccines are never harmful, they're 100% safe and effective, I think you turn parents off because they see that there's some wiggle room in terms of honesty. And when you express Yes, there are some risks, but the risks are way more extreme, like magnitudes more extreme by not vaccinating. Then you display some real honesty. You show them that you are understanding where they're coming from, and you can demonstrate why these parents are still honest, even though they might not be right. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. We can say that Certainly, <clears throat> the overwhelming majority of parents with some kind of, of tragic anecdotal testimonial, the overwhelming majority will not be lying. They'll be giving their perception of what happened and they'll be sincere in their belief, but they will be mistaken about the correlation, the causation, and the relationship between the vaccine and the perceived event. And you're also right to say that it's, it's wrong for people to say, oh, well, don't worry about vaccines are 100% safe, 100% effective, blah, blah, blah. That kind of language is not helpful because it's, it's completely inaccurate. The way I like to put it is vaccines are safe and effective and adverse events are so infrequent and so minor as to be statistically negligible because that really is the case. The possibility of having even a regular adverse event as a result of vaccination is extraordinarily low and the possibility of having a seriously problematic reaction is incredibly low, so much lower than the risks of a severe reaction or problematic reaction or life-threatening reaction to a vaccine-preventable disease. So the statistics simply are not in the anti-vaxxers' favour. They overwhelmingly support the safety of vaccination. Did you ever see your mother or did your mother ever encourage you to look at the scientific side did she ever attempt to say well here is an argument used by scientists in favor of vaccination or here is a, a paper i read on on vaccination supporting it and here is why it's wrong this is why these doctors are wrong uh, this is how we disprove the science was there ever, ever any attempt to address the science head-on and refute it with science no no there's only the science doesn't matter from my mom now, there are scientific arguments from other anti-vaxxers, like the baboon study, which is frequently brought up in relation to the pertussis whole cell versus acellular vaccine. And I actually just did a report on that, and it's totally a misrepresentation. Actually, it, it, it kind of shows that we really care about vaccine safety because the whole cell vaccine caused more side effects. So we use the acellular one, which causes less side effects, although it's less effective. So we traded efficacy for safety and that demonstrates that anti-vaxxers should like that, you know, but they, they, they use it for their own argument. And, and sometimes I'll make this argument that the statistics one you just mentioned where the side effects are very rare, but then you, you hear this trope and it's that 
you can't sacrifice the one for the many. Even one child suffering an adverse reaction is too many out of a million doses. And what this is failing to understand is mul multiple things, but one of the first things this fails to understand is science is never about the perfect solution. You know, all kinds of medicine have side effects. It's about the best solution given your options. What's the best thing to go with? How many people in chemo are complaining that there are side effects? You know, I mean, I'm sure they're complaining about the side effects, don't get me wrong, but it's still worth getting the chemo. So it's also not taken into consideration like, okay, but how many children would be sacrificed if we didn't vaccinate? And that's like more children. And so we're sacrificing them instead. It just flips the whole thing. So I think it's a really bad argument, but you'll, you'll get that in response to the statistics sometimes. Yeah, I think that is a particularly weak argument, uh, especially since it can be so easily flipped. For example, if anti-vaxxers are so concerned about the one in a million child who might suffer a severe yet non-fatal and easily treated and swiftly resolved adverse reaction, why are they not concerned about the many, many, many millions of children who suffer agonizing reactions from vaccine preventable diseases and the many hundreds of thousands of children who die from vaccine preventable diseases. If vaccines were killing children at the rate that vaccine preventable diseases are, can you imagine the uproar? And even though they're not, we're still getting this, this ridiculous outrage. So it seems to me the anti-vaxxers haven't thought this through very well because the diseases that they like to say are largely harmless and, and of no real concern are literally killing hundreds of thousands of children every year. And yet they think vaccines should be stopped just because one in a million children might have a fever, some febrile seizures, and maybe an overnight stay in hospital and then come out perfectly the next day with no drama. I don't see how they can fail to see the logical problem there. Yeah, it seems readily apparent. And there's a saying in psychopharmacology, if there's no side effects, there's no primary effects. And uh, in terms of any other drug, I mean, vaccines are a million times safer. Uh, if drugs were tested like vaccines, drugs would be safer. They're tested in more children for longer periods of time. So, you know, it just, it is a remarkably remarkably weak argument. And, and the problem with anti-vax views is they're very broad. So if, if you pick apart and debunk one idea, they've got a million others to reinforce other ideas. Although they're broad though, they don't have a lot of depth. You go into any one of them, you can pick apart in 20 minutes of research. So you've got this huge broad landscape of arguments that don't go very deep and that kind of makes it hard to get at the entire worldview. Yeah, that's a very good point about breadth and depth. The anti-vax argument, the entire structure of, of their worldview is based on just a few faulty assumptions and some flawed arguments. And then, then the rest of it is just anecdotes and blatantly false claims that are easily disproved. You can knock down the whole house of cards very quickly by undermining the foundations. And that doesn't take long because as you say, they're not very deep in the first place. What anti-vaxxers rely on most of all, apart from anecdotes, is simply the endless stream 
of objections and arguments that they can produce. Many of these are just the same old argument phrased in different language. And all they do is trot these out in a form of a, a, a gish gallop, a big waterfall of, of statements, big wall of text, hoping to overwhelm you with all this. And, and very often it will take only, you know, two minutes to see through most of that and realize just how irrelevant and, and incorrect it is. There's no science, there's no substance, there's no depth to it, and it doesn't stand up to robust scrutiny. But because it takes time, because it can be, it can be time consuming to present the evidence that refutes these claims, a lot of people go, oh, I just won't even bother arguing. And the anti-vaxxer thinks, oh, well, they, that's it, I've, I've won because someone didn't argue with me. <laughs> And, right. and that's just how they, they measure it. They don't stop to think, well, someone didn't engage with me because they've realized I'm not providing anything worth engaging with, no science or anything, or someone didn't engage with me because they saw my mind is closed and it was a complete waste of time. So you know, anti-vaxxers like to, like to take this as a win, where of course, they, because for them, it's all about winning and it's all about shutting up the other person. And if the other person has stopped replying, they just assume that they have won. Yeah. And you, you can capitalize on this um, in two ways. The first one is you can make it clear before starting the discussion that there won't be any moving of the goalpost. And if you do that and they immediately move the goalpost to debunk their first point, then you will be able to call them out on it since you kind of fore foreshadowed that happening. And you can also focus on one study in the instance of a Gish Gallup. So let's say they send you 50 studies on autism and vaccines. Ask them for the best study out of that 50. And often they won't even do it. They'll just say, read them all, read them all. Like, no, I want, show me the best one. Which one's the best one? Which one's the most worth my time? My time's limited and valuable. So what's the best study? If they can even give you the best study, you can point out they clearly don't know what they're talking about and move on from there. If they give you one study to focus on and you prevent them from moving the goalpost, you can focus on that. That's fantastic advice. And I totally agree. You can also ask them, why is this the best study? What, what makes it the best study in your opinion on how have you, how have you assessed it and have you compared it to other studies that might contradict that? And if you, can you explain to me why those studies must be wrong and this study must be right? And furthermore, can you explain why this study, if it's so good, does not actually fall in line with the overwhelming scientific consensus on vaccine safety and effectiveness? So you can begin to dig at it in a number of ways and just show all of the underlying assumptions, and that's all they are, underlying assumptions that you've brought to this are wrong and you haven't actually looked at this, someone has passed you a list of studies, you've copy pasted it and passed it on to other people. You've never actually looked at it. Likely you are not qualified to look at it and understand even what you are, are reading entirely. You're certainly not qualified to critique it effectively. And that's where the cracks really start to show very quickly. Yeah, there was one Gish Gallup where someone actually put a sexual video link in the Gish Gallup and it wasn't noticed for weeks and people are passing it around showing vaccines cause autism and five links down, there's a, a very sexual video in there and it has nothing to do with vaccines. And it just, someone just inserted it and let them continue. And it just, it just, it's just like they, they are not reading it. So yeah, you ask for some elaboration 
and you're not going to get very far. And that's a good way to go when approaching these people. Um, so yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so what was it that sparked your own investigation of vaccines? And, and what was it that began to... I, I, can't, I don't know if I can say change your mind or turn your views because I, I don't know how much you shared your your mother's views. But what was it that, should I say, began to improve your your confidence in vaccination and the science and medicine behind vaccination? Uh, well, actually, I was in a debate called the needle of controversy with this this scientist type person. And um, I was arguing against vaccines uh, and he was arguing for them. And I thought I was going to crush this dude because I've been, you know, since everything happened with my brother, I've been a lot of anti-vaxxers reached out to me, gave me all their best talking points. And I was like, oh, this is all interesting. This kind of makes sense. So some of these things I don't have answers to, I'll ask them here. And this dude kind of destroyed me, honestly. Like I didn't, I didn't view thimerosal right. I thought it was like another form of mercury, um, which it technically is, but you know, I thought it was ethyl mercury, not methyl mercury and all kinds of things I got wrong. And that kind of made me, it didn't change my mind, but it reduced my attitude certainty. I wasn't as certain about my anti-vax views anymore. I wasn't necessarily pro-vax. But after that debate, I started doing more research and I realized that a lot of the stuff I knew were half-truths. They weren't really truths in and of themselves. They were partially true, but they were half the story. And the clearest example of this I had was the argument that sanitation and hygiene was responsible for the reduction of disease and not vaccination. And there's a graph in the popular anti-vax doctor's book, Suzanne Humphrey's Dissolving Illusions. And this graph shows that over time, after sanitation and hygiene was introduced in like the 60s, it was more used then, the deaths from all diseases went down. So she showed deaths from measles were decreasing before the measles vaccine and implied that without the vaccine, measles still would have gone to no deaths. Um, regardless. And I thought that was a good argument. However, the thing that that chart is missing is case incident rates. So when you only look at mortality, you do find that all diseases were decreasing in terms of death rates uh, before the introduction of vaccines. But what you don't see is that the, the, the case rates, so how often people are getting the disease and transmitting it, does not go down for any disease until the individual vaccine is introduced. So polio cases, they don't drop to the polio vaccine. Measles cases, they don't drop to the measles vaccine, so on and so forth. So you put these charts together, you see that deaths were not going to decrease until the vaccine because vaccines reduce the case rates. And that's the only thing that's gonna reduce the deaths that would still occur, like for example, in measles. So after seeing that, I was like, hey, you guys didn't tell me the whole story. <laughs> like, this is crucial information. And of course, it was not provided because it goes against the narrative. And I found that, and after I saw it there, I was like, I think I was ready for it. Like I was looking for it. I was like primed for it. And I started seeing it everywhere. And that seems to be true with almost all of my attitudes on vaccines before were half truths. And figuring out the rest of the story is crucial 
to actually knowing what's going on. You've made a really good point about the effects of sanitation and hygiene because of, of course, yes, they did reduce deaths considerably <clears throat> for uh, many vaccine preventable diseases and many of the diseases that at the time and still now can't be prevented with a vaccine. But that's not remotely controversial, but and it also completely misses the point. Firstly, of course, that death rate was going to go down, but it wasn't going to go down any further. It had pretty much hit its baseline. Only vaccines could reduce it further than the effects of sanitation and hygiene. And that is a huge point that anti-vaxxers completely overlook. Secondly, by focusing only on the deaths, it's just another way of moving the goalposts. Firstly, anti-vaxxers want to say, oh, well, we're worried about vaccines because they can cause damage to children, even if they don't kill them. But when it comes to vaccine preventable diseases, they want to say, well, we're only concerned about deaths. That's a ridiculous double standard. Many vaccine preventable diseases can and do have permanent long-term effects. Polio, for example, measles, for example, measles, even if it doesn't kill a child, can damage that child permanently in quite significant ways. It can, can uh, lead to encephalitis, swelling of the brain. It can damage a child's eyes. My own twin brother's eyes were permanently damaged by measles when we both had it as children because we hadn't been vaccinated against it. And he had to have an, an operation around the age of, I think, uh, somewhere between five and eight. He had to have an operation to fix the muscles in his eyes, which had been damaged by measles. And there are plenty of other vaccine preventable diseases that even when they don't kill, cause permanent, terrible, lifelong damage to a child. And anti-vaxxers just seem to want to brush this all away and, and ignore it and focus only on the deaths as if that's the most important thing. So again, there's a combination of moving the goalposts and then a hypocritical double standard which exposes the weakness of the sanitation hygiene argument. The other point too is as you continue through history and you see more and more vaccines being introduced, the death rates and the incident rates drop even further. They drop precipitously with the introduction of each vaccine. And therefore, we can show this is not simply a case of sanitation and hygiene, because where is the difference in sanitation and hygiene between the 1980s, when we had a measles vaccine, and the 1950s, when we didn't? Yeah, right. There's no, there's no difference, or if, if there is any difference, it's utterly negligible. You can't just say, oh, well, sanitation and hygiene started to address some diseases in the late 19 uh, late 1800s and then around 1910 sanitation and hygiene began to reduce some diseases and then by the 1940s sanitation and hygiene finally started to act on other diseases it doesn't make any sense at all only vaccines can take credit for the massive drop in deaths and incidents rate. And that is an argument that anti-vaxxers will never be able to refute because the facts are, are literally there, written in history and in the science and medical textbooks. Yeah, I like that argument as well because 
when you can appeal to history, you're not just appealing to science. And so you can appeal to a broad range of informational sources that support your argument. And it, it makes it hard, like, okay, so science is wrong. History is wrong. Every country is wrong. But you're right. Like, you know, it makes it a stronger point because you're not just using one source of evidence. And I, I thought that was funny that you brought up. Yeah, only vaccine side effects matter. Disease side effects, oh, those aren't important. But vaccine side effects, which are even a million times more rare, those matter. Like, why? You know, there's no real reason for it other than it supports the narrative. How did your mother respond when you began to turn towards vaccines? And and did this coincide with your your brother's change to, or I don't know if it was a change for him, but did it coincide with your, your brother's move to a stronger pro-vax position? How did your mother respond to that? Um, well, it wasn't great. She, <laughs> it's funny because anti-vaxxers will tell you to do your own research. But when you do and you're pro-vax, you should just listen to them. And so it, it didn't become do your own research. It switched to you should trust your mother. Your mom's been caring about you for so long. Your mom must be so disappointed in you. That became the new argument. And so what happened to doing your own research and coming to your own conclusions, which actually doing your own research, I kind of have questions about too, because, you know, if you're diagnosed with cancer, are you going to do your own research or are you going to figure out what the experts in that field think you should do? I guess it depends on who you are. But yeah, it wasn't favorable. My mom made a big post saying I was contributing to the death of children and all that stuff. But, you know, it was just a Facebook post. In person, she was more relaxed about it. She really just cares that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess she just cares more that we get along well. And I don't try to push my thoughts down her throat. And I, I still listen to her. And, like, she'll be talking to me. And I'll, I'll really hear her out. And I won't be interrupting her. I'll just really hear what she has to say. And I think the maintenance of our relationship has reduced any negative association she might have with that new position. So it wasn't great at first, but she got over it pretty much, um, thankfully. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much how it worked with her. Um, but in relation to do your own research, like I was saying, um, I think you should defer to expert consensus rather than do your own research on everything because there's a lot of stuff and you can't research everything. And if you're not trained to research it, you know, why do you trust your own judgment? Yeah, some people will say intuition, but you know, you realize how, how often intuition goes astray. You should probably stop using it as a baseline for truth. <laughs> and that's, that's easy. That's pretty easy to do. Yeah, I mean, you can look at the history of humanity and for most of the time that humans have lived on this planet, we've had just our basic intelligence, our whatever remnants of instinct we might still have left over kicking around in our genes and whatever it is that we, we define as intuition. And for most of that history, life has been extraordinarily difficult for humans. It was only when we began to develop science and science-based medicine and evidence-based medicine 
that we really began to improve our situation and you can track the explosion in human population growth and the reduction of disease and the development of technology very easily by marking the points at which major scientific and medical breakthroughs were achieved and all of a sudden the standard of living shoots up the life expectancy shoots up the average health of the community shoots up everything is improved by developments in science and medicine and i just don't see how anti-vaxxers can look back at that and say well it was better when we just relied on our intuition ignored the experts and went with our gut it's that is simply not what history shows. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions of history in that movement, which is part of why, you know, you've got such a broad scope, but you've got no depth on the individual arguments. So there's this argument that, you know, infant mortality has increased since the development of science and like lifespan and, and they'll, they'll use the obesity argument. Oh, we're a lot more obese now, but like standard of living has so dramatically improved that this is just delusional lifespan and quality of life has improved so much that, uh, you know, you're just not viewing reality like it is, you know, you're, you're in an illusion. And I think that's what this gets down to the core of it. Cause it's not really about intelligence. Uh, I've met a lot of anti-vaxxers. They're very smart, um, very scientific kind of, you know, quasi scientific maybe, but it's not really about how smart you are. I don't think, I think it's about who you trust and, you know, do you trust science and doctors or are you skeptical of them for some reason? And I think that's really the core of this whole thing. And I think one way to move is showing how much these skeptical people actually do put their trust in society when they don't even realize it. Like, for example, if you get on an airplane, you're probably not going to interview the pilot before takeoff. You probably trust he's a pilot who's qualified to do his job. Uh, why is the pilot fine, but the doctor isn't? Why, why so much scrutiny on a different established field? And, you know, you have the argument that doctors have been wrong before, like they used to recommend smoking, right? But planes have crashed before and you're still boarding one. So yes, things can go wrong, but how often do they go wrong? Doctors may fail, but not often. Most of the time they're pretty right. And they're going to tell you to change your diet if you eat terribly. So I think that's one point to show yeah, that they actually do trust in society more than they might think. You know, they're not as skeptical as they might think. It's just where that skepticism is, is mainly found. That's an excellent point because it touches on what I believe is a core issue in all of this. And that is that people's approach to vaccines and science and medicine in general is largely affected by the way they view the world and the tools that they use to interpret the world. It's strongly influenced and shaped by the, the way they acquire knowledge and the way they put together those ideas to form knowledge. And the, the technical term for this is epistemology, the theory of knowledge. So depending on how you structure information and form it into knowledge and how you view the world, that's going to have a very strong effect 
on your conclusions and it can if your epistemology is is seriously flawed it can lead you to draw very wrong conclusions from what is otherwise a reliable set of data because you're not interpreting them correctly you're bringing biased assumptions to bearing on that data which is is affecting your ability to interpret it properly and then you're simply shaping the resulting ideas to suit a preconceived worldview rather than allowing the data and the objective conclusions from that data to shape your worldview, which is, is the way it should be. You did bring up the, the point about doctors recommending smoking. And yeah, that is a very common one I hear from anti-vaxxers. Of course, if you look back through history and you look at the excellent books that have been written on this issue, what you will find is that there were only two groups of doctors who ever recommended smoking. Firstly, those who were paid to do so. Cigarette companies unloaded a huge amount of cash to literally bribe doctors to recommend certain brands of cigarette. That's why doctors always recommended a specific brand. They didn't say, oh yes, in general, smoking is good for you. It was always, well, I smoke such and such menthols and, and you should too kind of thing. Secondly, there are the, the other doctors who, who recommended them were not doctors at all. They were fake doctors. They were actors in advertising. And this too is, is well-documented. So firstly, there was only a very tiny percentage of genuine doctors who ever actually recommended smoking, and that is because they had been paid substantial amounts of money to do so by particular brands. And then secondly, all the other apparent doctors who were recommending smoking and advertisements were actors and not doctors at all. And they were simply used to create the illusion of a broader medical consensus. As early as the 1930s, people knew that smoking had serious effects, negative effects on human health. And by the 40s, connections were being made with cancer. So no one can, can say, oh, well, this was the medical consensus at the time. It was not the medical consensus. It was never the medical consensus. The earliest medical consensus on smoking was that it had some form of negative effects and that consensus only grew stronger and broader to sh as as the as the other negative effects associated with smoking such as lung cancer became apparent thanks to scientific research so again that is a very weak argument and very easily dispelled yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't know that it was um, only two small groups of select doctors. I could see a response being, oh, well, doctors are just being paid to promote vaccines. And that is, that would just be easy to debunk considering it's all doctors. It's not a select group of doctors. It's clearly the medical consensus. So get around that one. Good luck. So yeah, I think that that gets at the underlying issue. And I just read an interesting perspective from Heidi Larson. Uh, she runs the Vaccine Confidence Project in London. And she just wrote a new book called Stuck. And it's about vaccine um, hesitancy and what to do about it. And she argues that vaccines aren't often the real issue. It's about self-determination, dignity, and distrust. And so I think that if you can encourage individual self-determination restore their dignity through the doctor-patient relationship and address their distrust empathetically, 
uh, you might be able to get around this problem without even discussing vaccines much at all. Um, of course, I think debunking vaccine misinformation is still important. Um, there's one issue where if you debunk something, though, people remember it in the context of how you debunked it. So if I say vaccines don't cause autism, some people will remember just vaccines cause autism. And so that makes you wonder if you should actually debunk things, but you can minimize that effect with repetition, um, meaningful negations. This is Dan Gilbert's research, the social psychologist. So we should still focus on debunking this stuff, but I feel like that probably shouldn't be the core of our work in this field. I feel like getting at the core emotions and addressing those since it's not really about science and the talking points and the information, it's more about the underlying causes of those feelings. I feel like we can make some real progress here. Um, even if sometimes it can seem hard when you're debating someone on Facebook who doesn't seem to ever listen. So I think we can encourage ourselves as difficult as this might seem at times. I think that's a very healthy perspective and certainly a very mature approach to take to the issue. I'm familiar with Heidi Larson's work and she's certainly someone I would really want to interview on my podcast. I also have her book. I just haven't got around to reading it yet. I'm already plowing my way through a bunch of other vaccine related stuff. In conclusion then, Firstly, can you recommend anyone else aside from Heidi Larson that you think I should interview for my podcast? And secondly, if people want to follow you and, and your and your work, where can they find you online? Oh, yeah, I would recommend um, Brian Deere. He just wrote a, a book called uh, The Doctor Who Fooled the World, which is about Andrew Wakefield. And um, he is doing podcasts right now. So he would be good to reach out to. So he's good. Uh, I also just interviewed for my last episode, uh, Dr. Allison Meek, and she's a professor of conspiracy theories. And she had some very interesting stuff to say about the history of conspiracy theories and how they relate to the vaccine movement. And of course, Dr. Offit would be great. He, he does interviews all the time. He's one of the easiest people to interview as, and he maybe shouldn't be because he's so... His time is very valuable. But yeah, I would recommend those three for now. Um, definitely a lot of other good ones, though, who I'm not sure how often they do interviews. But those people are all, all really good. Um, if you want to follow some of my stuff, I have the Straight to the Point podcast, which is a vaccine show that addresses vaccine misinformation. Um, it's on Spotify, iTunes, toasted on Podomatic. And the website is sttpshow.com or straighttothepointshow.com. Either one will get you there. Uh, we've got articles, YouTube videos, all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's mainly the podcast. But you can find me on all those places. I have Facebook, but I've deactivated it for peace of mind. Um, so I might pop up on Facebook sometime in the future. Uh, Facebook is where all my anti-vax friends were when I was more leaning that direction, and they just kind of annoy me at this point. So I'm off Facebook for now, but I'm on Twitter. It's extra dimensional. I made this when I was very interested in psychedelics still, as you can tell, which I still am, but I made this when that was my primary focus. It's E-X-T-A and then dimensional. And that's, I post a bunch of the vaccine stuff there. So yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me. And 
that's what I'd recommend, especially because Brian Deere's book is just came out. So it's very relevant right now. That's really great, Isaac. Thank you so much for that. I actually have Brian's book. Again, that's on my list of to read. So um, yeah, thank you again for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk about this stuff with you. I've really appreciated the way you've, you've shared so much of yourself and your personal story. And I really hope that you can keep going on and making a difference in the vaccine space and, and promoting vaccine safety and helping to dispel vaccine myths, because that is definitely something the world needs today more than ever. So thank you very much again, Isaac. Yeah, thank you, Dave. It was, it was a real pleasure. I, I enjoyed your show and um, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the previous episodes you've done. So that'll be cool. Thank you.